How are you? I am well. How are you? I'm congested. Are you still coughing? Like a crazed maniac. Well, this should be super fun then. Yes. Yes. You're <laughs> you're gonna have to you're gonna have to be on the top of your editing skills, I'm afraid. Hi, and welcome to Face Your Fears, a podcast where we have conversations about the things in life that scare us the most. My name is Liz, and I'm a life coach, a yoga teacher, and a political science professor at a community college in Tennessee. I started this podcast because I wanted to have conversations with people who are either in the middle of or who have successfully gotten past a moment where they're doing something that really scares them. And in today's episode, I think we're having a conversation that more fully embodies that goal than any other episode that I've put out so far. Today, I'm bringing you a conversation that I recorded with one of my very favorite people, Scott Foster. Scott and I met in 1999 in Arkansas, soon after I graduated college. He was living in Fayetteville, and I was living back in my hometown of Mountain Home, Arkansas. And we dated for a while and kind of went back and forth between dating and being friends and falling out of touch and starting all over. At some point, we each found jobs in Dallas, independent of one another. We we weren't even really talking at the time and ended up moving to Dallas together and, and had a really good time. After Scott left Dallas, he met the woman who would become his wife, Sandy, and shortly thereafter, he began a medical journey that ended with him needing a heart transplant. And in this conversation, you're going to hear the story of how that journey unfolded from the moment that he first got sick to the almost 11th hour miracle that was finding just the right heart to save his life. In this conversation, a couple of things that I want to just prepare you for. First of all, at some point we have a really hearty laugh over something that happened in Mountain Home. So this was early in our knowing each other. He was visiting me in Mountain Home. I don't even really remember exactly what happened, but essentially, as happens to all of us as we get older, his back completely gave out and he could not move for a couple of days. So he ended up staying in Mountain Home a little longer than he had perhaps planned, but we were able to come to his assistance thanks to our experience with my dad, who also experiences back problems. So you'll hear us laughing about that and that's kind of what's going on there. The second thing that I want to mention before I turn you over to that conversation is that at the end of his story, Scott really provides this incredible bit of insight about what he's learned post heart transplant. And he he says something that I think is really critical. He's talking about how in those moments when he was in the hospital, he came to understand that really small gestures turned out to be really affirming and powerful to him. Something as little as a hug or a back rub. And he says, we don't realize how powerful we are. Every one of us has the power to make the world just a little bit brighter for someone else, 
especially someone who's going through stuff that you don't even know about. And I think that that's a really fantastic lesson and something that I hope each of us can be a little more mindful about as we move forward. So I hope you enjoy this conversation. I certainly enjoyed having it. And without further ado, let's go listen to Scott. Welcome, Scott, to the podcast. Oh, thank you. Today, we're going to talk about a lot of different things, and I'm really, really excited to hear what you have to say, starting with a pretty significant event in your life not that long ago. Why don't you tell us a little bit about what happened? Yeah. First, thanks for uh, having me on, Miss Liz. I really appreciate the opportunity to talk to you about these matters, and I really like talking about uh, what happened to me about eight years ago with my uh, heart transplant and that whole experience. It's rare that I get to uh, talk in depth about it, but it was, of course, a pivotal point in my life and where I had not only to go through uh, many years of problems and uh, mental and physical anguish, but it also uh, provided me uh, with kind of an epiphany about how how my life was being lived and how I should change it. And so to uh, give you kind of a rough overlay of, of how things happened at first, when I was about 35 years old and was just, um, I was uh, dating my now wife, uh, Sandy, uh, I had begun to develop a, uh, a cough and, a, and sort of cold and flu-like symptoms that would not go away. And I went to the doctor a couple of times and they, uh, you know, did their normal thing, prescribed me antibiotics and, uh, you know, patted me on the head and said, go away. And I took them dutifully and uh, they uh, failed miserably both times we tried. And uh, over a period of time, over a period of, of months, as a matter of fact, I just slowly worse and worse. I, I began to uh, have trouble breathing even, even when I wasn't doing anything. Uh, it got to the point where I was having trouble crossing the street without uh, really laboring. So finally, I, I gave up and went to the uh, hospital. Fort Smith, and they uh, also patted me on the head and uh, gave me some uh, different antibiotics and sent me away. And uh, two days later, I went to uh, the Arkansas Heart Hospital in Little Rock, and they told me that I was almost dead. Oh and, my goodness! Uh, so that was <laughs> that was that was not good, uh, but but it was certainly surprising. I went to them and they basically uh, pumped my chest. Uh, it was it was full of liquid. It was full of uh, uh, the reason I was having such trouble breathing is I had somehow caught some weird virus, and the antibiotics wouldn't of course work on the virus, and uh, my chest cavity was literally filling with with liquid and drowning me and putting pressure on my heart. That's why I was having so much trouble. The damage that uh, that was caused by that incident was the, to my heart at least was it, it was uh, catastrophic. Uh, they tried to, over a period of years, did, many doctors in Arkansas tried to save my heart, tried to eliminate the symptoms or at least beat, beat them back. And uh, over a period of, I guess, of one, two, three, about four or five years, I just slowly became weaker, weaker, and weaker. And uh, finally, they sent me to Mayo Clinic in Florida when they uh, finally exhausted everything they could do in Arkansas. And at that point... They helped me for about six or seven months there uh, as an outpatient, and finally ran, they ran out of tricks, and um, I had to be 
put in the hospital there at Mayo Clinic because I was getting to the point where I was so weak that that I I just couldn't live a a normal life. Yeah. Yeah. I want to stop you there because I just want to kind of check in. Like, what are you feeling as all of this is happening? Like, what's going through your mind? What's happening in your life? Like, what's going on here? That was the perfect time to kind of uh, cut me off because now is the time that I that the the fear and the mental and physical anguish began. That is this exact point uh, because before I always thought that. In the in the years, you know, subsequent to this, uh, you know, the admission to the hospital, I, I thought that that I was just fighting a battle that I could eventually win, uh, yeah. that that the doctors would help. But if you're asking what my mental state was, it it was reasonably positive until that admission. That was sort of the one of the worst days of my life when you know I was told by a doctor, it does not appear that your heart is going to make it through all this. We're going to have to give you a heart transplant. And that, I'll never forget that day. And the person that told me that, Dr. Yip, it was a crushing blow because in my own mind, that meant that I was going to die and I was going yeah. to, and I, and I was going to die relatively fast. I knew the, you know, percentages, the odds, the, the fact that, you know, many organ donors never receive their organs in time. And even if they do, like the case of heart transplants, uh, the percentage chance of somebody living uh, a long life uh, and having a successful operation, if they can even survive, is low. So I guess to answer your question, the positive, you know, I'm, a, I'm a normally a positive person and I was very positive until that, that particular moment. I, you know, began to, to honestly think of how, you know, what I should do, you know, how I should get my affairs in order. And of course, I was ignorant to the the real facts about how I had a little bit better chance than I thought, and okay. that that was explained to me. So, yeah, it was. Um, the, the, there's kind of a special terror in when somebody tells you that your brain or your heart is is not going to make it; it's going to stop, or if or you know, say you have a brain tumor, and you know. Your brain as it is, is not going to work anymore. I, I want to say terrifying, but it's, it's worse than that. It, 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 having, you know, imagining uh, having your heart cut out of your body. Uh, I know that's very, very graphic. I hate to use it, but it is a terrifying prospect. And when you have to face it, it it's very, very hard. And the way I felt the Sarge being terrified was uh, obviously very sad. And, and sad not only for myself, but for my family who was there with me. And they were, you know, my wife was trying to be positive. She was trying to uplift me and trying to let me know that this wasn't a, necessarily a death sentence. And um, my dad was comforting as me as best he could. He's not a medical person. It was probably the worst, worst day of my life. Uh, other than uh, a couple of uh, specific things that, that happened during the course of my uh, hospitalization that were also terrifying and and uh, they were also uh, very painful yeah. so um, yeah when I was put into the hospital when I was admitted I walked in the room I sat my stuff down and hopped in the uh, bed and and it, w it was almost surreal uh, because I knew that even though I 
I could still function and do things and, you know, be okay for now. I knew that within a week I wouldn't even be, have the strength to get out of the debt. Wow. You knew that. Yeah. Oh, sure. And that's, that's a, I, I keep going back to the surreal. Yeah. It's a surreal state. It's, there's no way to explain the feeling behind that other than to say that, that all my life I've played sports and been reasonably active and to think that I could not move right. out of bed was another, I guess, kind of crushing blow as far as, you know, my ego and also the, you know, from a standpoint of thinking that people would have to take care of me if I survived, would I be in this constant state? It was the different things, the different aspects of going through a process like this. It's not all simple. Uh, you question, you know, in my particular case, for instance, you know, you're questioning your faith. You're questioning the, the ability of your mind to stay strong, to stay sane. Uh, yeah. it, it, it's, it's kind of a complete problem. It, it, there's, <laughs> there's so many aspects to it. It's, it's hard to cover them all. Well, and I imagine that in that experience, it probably strips down everything to the really core essence of your life. Like, you know, it's um, as a way of kind of taking all of the things at the fringe and receding them into the background. Yes. Yes. You know, that is really true. You do concentrate on the here and now and, you know, you're a lot more present than you are uh, normally and you know going outside and just breathing fresh air and seeing grass after being in the hospital for two and a half months and not being able to do that was quite amazing i'm sure Uh, i'm sure yeah and i i still when you're in the hospital for that long constantly having ivs pumping chemicals in you and and you're in a hospital which is naturally cold anyway going out of the hospital into the florida sun was was you know one of the most wonderful feelings that I, I I've ever had, and I, I smile every time I I think about it. And we're kind of skipping over the experience itself to the end, but that was uh, that's another memory that you never forget is is the, the feel of that after being cold for for two and a half months straight with no fresh air, no grass, no trees. Uh, or, or no smell of the outside, only the, you know, the antiseptic of, of a hospital room. It gave me a great appreciation of earth and uh, of nature and of bird singing, everything. You know, that's kind of cliche, <laughs> but uh, boy, it sure, it, you know, after 80 days in a hospital room, the, the cliche is thrown out and you, it really is true. That's life boils down to kind of very simple pleasures and very simple wants and needs, even a, you know, a warm blanket or, or just a back scratch becomes a not something life or death necessarily but it becomes extremely important an encouraging word just the slightest pat on the, on the back the all those things concentrated uh, and and mean so much it's hard to describe but your emotions and your feelings are uh, so much more powerful when there's nothing else when you're barely alive nothing else except you and you know the hospital room and the and the machines and you trying to survive it is a a, a unique experience yeah
So let's pick up where we left off. You check into the hospital, knowing that you're not going to come out for a while. Right. What does life look like in the hospital? Well, I was very lucky in a way. You know, Mayo Clinic is beautiful. When you go into their main lobby, I, I don't know if you're familiar. I can't even think of the name right now, but that artist that does those beautiful, colorful glass sculptures. Yeah, Chihuly, uh, I think, right? Yeah, yeah, I don't, I don't know how to say yeah, that, but that guy. But yeah, yeah, that guy. He did an amazing, monstrously huge uh, chandelier from the main hall of, of that place, uh, Mayo. So yeah, when I went in there, I was just thinking how beautiful the place was and the room and the people there, the quality of care was second to none anywhere in the world. I, In fact, people do come from all over the world the only reason I was lucky enough to go there was that they just simply ran out of ran out of ideas in Arkansas, and the <laughs> the doctor that was trying to help me said, "I got nothing, so I'm going to have to send you on where they may may be able to figure this out." So when I when I entered there and I knew what was coming, I uh, basically got some reading material together and. I was actually thankful for where I was and, and treatment I was getting. Most of that first week, first couple of weeks actually, were easing into a routine that was continually getting weaker and weaker. I was easing into a routine of being constantly analyzed, uh, given medicines uh, all the time to try to keep my heart at a kind of a normal pace with a normal strength. It was very weak, but trying to keep it uh, beating in a reasonable rhythm, trying to, I guess, elongate my life. And uh, they used a lot of powerful medications to do that. And as they began to use them, I became colder and colder and sicker and sicker. Uh, and, and I guess probably after 10 days, I was to the point where I couldn't even, I could not move out of the bed. That was not only very scary, but it was a kind of a blow to one's ego because that, that yeah. never ha never happened to me except one other time. That was in Mountain Home. Yes, I know. Remember? <laughs> 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 you, you know, you fed me some Captain D's, and I was all right. But you know, this is a little bit worse. Uh, that didn't yes. it didn't work out you know it things didn't pop back in after a couple of days of rest. <laughs> uh, I know <laughs> so I, I got to the point where I was uh, in bed and could not move and that is where the real sadness and fear uh, started to creep in on me the, the most because that had of course was unprecedented and that never happened before. And I was literally feeling my body crashing because, you know, from an, you know, just talking about the medicine part here, once that heart goes, everything goes. The, my kidneys were failing. I was having uh, an immense amount of edema or basically liquid was forming uh, or, or I was holding liquid all around uh, my belly and my back what I mean is my muscles uh, were wasting at a, at a really high rate, but I was holding fluid. So if you can yeah. imagine this, I was like a Holocaust survivor with a 50-pound 
water baby. Yeah. And um, yeah, <laughs> I tell you, that sounds like fun. Huh? I was kind of uh, amused. Some of the stuff when you have a dark sense of humor like me, right. uh, it kind of amused me and, and broke me out of some of the sad and scary parts of times when I saw what they had to do. One time, for instance, they when I was in the, one of the states that I just described, they, with all that fluid retention, they did what's called, I think it's called, a, a, it's been a long time, I think it's called a paracentesis, where they basically put a, um, a rig into, inside your abdomen and draw out fluid. And th- they had to wheel over a barrel. Oh, my gosh. A, <laughs> casters on the bottom of it. <laughs> and I just looked. I just looked at it and laughed. Right. What do you do? Right. Uh, you know, and it, these moments actually helped me. I, I guess because I was starting to go crazy, but I actually started laughing at how bad everything was and how freaking scared I was. Things started to become funny. It's that gallows and humor. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. You know, I, I described those first 10 days where, where I was actually bedridden. And then this is what I'm talking to you about is more of the, the, you know, day 10 to 30, where I was going through all these tests. I was having the paracentesis. I was being given drugs to try to stretch out what I was going through. About day 30, Mayo Clinic determined that I had to have a heart transplant and, and not later now. So they put out what's called a 1A they put made me one A, which is okay. The various highest call for a, an organ, uh, a heart transplant. So that, of course, that a little announcement and that and that knowledge, along with some of my labs, because I'm, you know, at this point, I had since I have nothing to do, Liz. You know what I did? I studied right. everything they gave me with a fine tooth comb, right? I mean, I have nothing else to do. So I'm, I can't I use hope. the labs as well as the doctor now. <laughs> I really hope that you didn't have a Google uh, search bar at your disposal. Oh, oh, I actually uh, didn't use much of that, uh, but I did have my nurses there and I did have Sandy and, uh, and I was asking them questions incessantly. And then finally I, and I was learning uh, about things. And so, oof. Could, I could tell, you know, oh, my God, I have a, you know, my kidney lab came back. I have a 5.8 creatinine. That is horrific. Yeah. And so basically that means your kidneys are dying. And yeah. so I thought, uh, I thought, oh, wow, this will be great. Now I have to have a kidney transplant also. So this is kind of the second, the second wave of fear. The first one was the first one had to do with the, the kind of the loss of being able to get out of bed being able to do things the the second was uh oh my god i'm 1a that means that they think that i'm about to die and that's when sort of the mortality the thoughts of my own mortality the thoughts of uh death itself started to creep in and i started to think about that on the daily basis also you know me being a christian i thought a lot more about what i really believe and how i perceive this uh, I tried to make sense out of it as, as far as uh, what I thought you know God's will was for my life and uh, how my family would take it and what I could learn from it if I did survive that it was kind of a, a time of acceptance and of trust but at the same time 
I'd, you know, I'd be lying if I didn't tell you that there was a lot of emotion, a lot of pain and anger. The, there wasn't anything I could do. My mind was trapped in, in this body that was, that was turning off. Yeah. Uh, and it, it was, I almost wished a couple of times that my mind would just stop because it was constantly, you know, bombarded with information, labs, analyzation of what was going on with me. It's kind of like listening to a, a football game and yeah. you're losing right. <laughs> every day in a greater way. Hit mute. I don't yeah. need the announcers for this part. <laughs> oh, man. So, yeah, that was kind of the way it was from day 10 to 30. Then, you know, we come to, say, day 30 to 60. That's when I began the, the true downhill slide where on a daily basis I had to be, you know, they had to put me in dialysis. They had to give me extremely powerful medications just to keep my heart going. They almost, you know, lost me a couple of times. I was had very little strength uh, left. I was just kind of, you know, half the time I was asleep, and the other half of the time, half of the time I was awake. I, I had to really struggle to uh, stay conscious. And during that time, the power of, of, I guess, of my own sadness and fear was actually less because I, I just didn't have the strength. I didn't have the mental capacity to constantly concentrate on that and try to fight. It's funny. You have so little energy and so little mental power. There's so, so little resolve or will when you're so weak that I know it's kind of weird to say I, don't, I didn't have time enough to be scared right. at that point. I didn't have the energy. to. I just was trying to breathe yeah. and trying to trying to be present, trying to to um, talk to my wife, trying to talk to my nurse, trying to talk to my doctor and keep them in the loop of how I was feeling and what I was, what I thought was going on. So finally we come to the, the end. This was, uh, I guess, day 70. And what happened then is they came into my room and said, Scott, we're going to have to call Arizona, which is, you know, Mayo in Arizona. And we're going to have to ask those people, to, to some a team from there, to get on the plane. They're going to have to fly here in two days, and we're going to put you in a medically induced coma. Wow! And they said, you know, you there's a good chance you won't ever come out of that. But at this point, your heart is, is and body are are so weak that you can't stay the way you are. Uh, we're going yeah. to have to do that. You have two days for that, and then we'll continue to find a heart and see what happens after that, but you need to prepare for that happening. Yeah. So I did that. And of course, you know, been time with Sandy and, you know, talked about stuff and, and started to prepare for, for what was going to happen. And an interesting story the night before that this was to happen, I, I had made friends. Of course, I've been there so long for right. you know, almost two and a half months. I'd made friends with all the nurses and staff and, and doctors and everything, they really were good friends. And one of them was a, a nurse uh, associate, a nurse assistant, 
uh, named Alvin, which, you know, he was a wonderful guy. He looked a lot like Steve Harvey, uh, he was, <laughs> okay. uh, except he had, instead of just a mustache, he had a full goatee, but he was a really nice guy. He loved basketball and he loved uh, talking to me and we'd come in. He and his wife were a pastor team at a very small church there in town. And, you know, we'd, we'd talk about uh, our faith and we'd also talk about uh, basketball and, you know, other sports and everything. And we'd, he'd weigh me and uh, bathe me and, and do all those things. And it kind of passed the time and made it less awkward between us. But, you know, this, this last time I, I, I was so weak, I, I wasn't really conscious. I was sleeping mostly, and, and when I wasn't sleeping, I was only half there. So Alvin, uh, those nurse, nursing assistants don't make much, and they don't get a lot of time off, and they don't get a lot of time even for lunch. But uh, that night, he took his you know 45 minutes of lunch, and he came to my bedside, and he put his hands on me and just prayed for 45 minutes straight. And, of course, Sandy uh, had called everybody and had talked to all my friends, friends and family back home and and they were doing the same but it just something about alvin what he did it was just extremely touching because he knew what was happening with me and he just dropped everything and and chose to come in there and just and spend that much time you know i i have trouble praying for 10 minutes straight uh, or meditating for 10 minutes straight and he you know chose to come in there for uh, practically a stranger and and do that. It was, and I didn't find out, of course, till many days after I was sure I was out. But it was pretty amazing. Anyway, before uh, approximately two hours before they got on the plane, approximately eight hours after uh, Alvin had stopped saying his prayers and everybody else at home, a gentleman uh, in Savannah, Georgia. I'm sorry. I'm I'm sorry. A little bit south of there. Uh, actually, in, in in the woods, had a terrible ATV accident, and um, the, this gentleman had hit his head uh, on the side of the road so hard that he had a terrible brain bleed, but did not realize it. Oh, no. He went home, and uh, unfortunately, uh, by the time they figured out what had happened to him and how bad he was. They got him to the hospital, but he was already essentially brain dead. Uh, but his body was fine, uh, and the very a lower part of his brain that controlled the, those functions was still working. So this person had was my exact age. He was in the exact area of the country that I needed him to be because remember, hearts right. you, it has to be only. You only have five or six hours. Can't be in New York or, or, you know, Arkansas. It would have to be in a very small region. He uh, was my exact age. He had my, I have a very strange heart architecture. I found that out afterward. So that was why it was so hard to match me. It took so long, even on the 1A. He had my exact heart, strange heart architecture, my exact blood type. The heart was checked out and it was found to be flawless. So... I guess, you know, after all, after all those things, the chances of, of such a thing happening are, let, let's just put the odds are extremely high. Yes. Enough, to where my, enough to where my atheist doctor said, 
I might just start uh, uh, calling you Lazarus now because that's <laughs> that, that's insane that that that, that 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 could happen like that. He couldn't believe it. Anyway, I went into the emergency surgery. Uh, when they brought the the heart, they flew the heart down from where he had his accident and where that that kind kind family allowed the uh, organ donation to happen. I volunteer at Aurora, which is Arkansas's version of heart and also organ transplantation, and um, so important to to be a donor. But the heart was placed in me, and immediately I began to recover. And the heart was such a perfect match that I all my body started to work because believe it or not, it got blood to it, and that's amazing yeah. how much better you do. Right. You have blood to your organs. Yeah, I got to go outside after after uh, I guess about ten to fifteen days after receiving it, and got to that point I was telling you about about feeling the sun and uh, seeing the grass and breathing the fresh that that fresh air, you know, hearing the birds. And it was, well, it's an emotion that, that can't be described, but a deep sense of gratitude, deep sense of uh, happiness, of contentment. It changes you forever, for sure, because you, sure, never, yeah. you, never look at, yeah, you never look at things the same again. There's a hundred stories that are within the story that I just gave you of every single lab, every single, every procedure, the things that were going on. Um, I was constantly battling suicidal ideation, fear, unbelievable and unimaginable pain. And I guess all throughout it, um, a mixture of my faith and my, my mind, uh, the ability to, to think and to, and to, to analyze and to reason and to help in some small way with my own care by communicating with my doctors, all of that together uh, was the way I fought my fear. And it's what got me through it. It got, it got me to the point where I finally received that help that I so desperately needed with the heart and the, the miracle that, that it was. So, What does and life that, look like that, for you now? It's different. How that changed me was... Before, probably know a little bit about this, I had had very, very, very little discipline and, and uh, very little interest in doing anything except what, what made me happy at the time. And I, I really didn't have any interest or I didn't see any perspective about how you owe something to society. You owe something to your fellow man. Use what gifts you know, depending on your, you know, your faith, or even if you don't have faith, you still have a moral imperative to use what gifts you have and use what you can produce to help others. And I never fulfilled my promise. I never took my gifts and, and decided to do anything with them. But now, ever since that moment came, I was determined to do that. In a way, it also brought brought about more fear because I had to, in order to do all those things, I knew that I had to go back to school and it would be a long, arduous journey through going back, paying for it, doing the work afterward that I, I felt like that I, I should do. There were fears there too, <laughs> but, sure. but I feel like I'm on the right track. Yeah. So, 
that was the heart transplant experience. Not something that I I would ever wish on my worst enemy. <laughs> you don't want to do it again. <laughs> no, no. It, even if even if it would make me a better person, I would refuse. Yes, I think that's wise. <laughs> uh, then again, it did bring me to where I am, which I feel like I have a, a, a much greater sense of purpose. My faith increased, of course, uh, a great deal, and I've been a lot more effective in communicating with people and leading people since then because, you know, my perspective changed. Instead of being turned inward, I turned outward. Yeah. And once you once you do that, opportunities and good things start to happen. You know, I think that that is so wise, Scott, because I think that so many of us walk around this world thinking about, like, am I good enough? Am I doing the right thing? Am I, am I, am I, am I, am I? And it just really puts us interacting with the world from a place of of weakness and uncertainty. And when you can shift, when you can kind of just make peace with that and, and say the fact that I'm here is a real gift and what can I do to make the world a better place with that gift? It just brings so much, it's a cascading happiness really for you and for everyone else. Yes. Yes. It's really, it, it's funny. You know, you touch on that. That is the center of it is everybody has something special that they can give when you're in that situation that, that remember I was telling you how the smallest kind word and yeah. the, you know, a one minute back scratch or just any kind of encouragement was not only important, it was vital. It was crucial. It yeah. pushed me forward. Anybody can do those things. Yeah. And it makes you realize how important they are and how special they are and, and how powerful everybody can become if they realize what their abilities are, what they can do for others, how others can react, how, how much it matters, because it does. And you don't have to be that sick. Millions are in great states of depression. Veterans, the people I serve right now in my current job, the VA hospital, thousands and thousands commit suicide. Thousands upon thousands are addicted to opioids. And I get the opportunity to at least help and greet and encourage and love these people every day. And I don't get to do much, but that little bit is maybe that can get them through that day or, or that yeah. week. We don't realize how powerful we are. I think sometimes. I think that's so right. I really, really do. Yeah. It's, it was something I thought would, you know, before all this happened, I, I thought talking that way or even thinking that way was kind of trite. That re really didn't matter, you know, but it does. People can make a huge difference with a very small amount of well-timed and well-placed kindness. That's powerful. Yeah, and true that's the the best part of it is it's not it's true it's not a lie it's not it's just words it's true and uh i was lucky enough to live through it so i know about it and i can tell it to others and i so appreciate the opportunity to be able to tell it you know in this venue to you yeah 
and to all the people who are listening and will listen. Yes. In truth, I recorded this conversation quite a while ago, honestly, probably more than a month. And so I hadn't listened to it in a little while when it came time to edit it and prepare it for the podcast. And in doing so, I was just so deeply moved by the story that Scott told and the lessons that he drew from those experiences. Today, Scott has completed his Master's of Public Administration, his MPA. He actually talked to me for this podcast from the UALR Law Library, the University of Arkansas Little Rock, which is where he lives. And among the projects that he is working on include a book that he wants to write and a nonprofit that's aimed at more civil discourse. Scott and I really bonded initially and have continued to have a strong friendship over our enjoyment of talking about politics. So Scott leans a good bit more right than I do, and I lean a good bit more left than he does. But one of my favorite things about our friendship has always been our ability to kind of have really fun and laughter-filled conversations about politics. So after we finished our conversation about his heart transplant, we kept the recorder going and talked a little bit about politics. That conversation I'll bring you in a future episode after we complete our Health Fears series. And on that note, this is the first of four or possibly five or even six conversations about facing health fears. And I started off with a bang. So coming up next will be three conversations with health providers about their perspectives on different kinds of health problems that people come to medical professionals about. And then after that, I'm hoping with a little bit of luck, knock on wood, we'll get Scott's wife, Sandy, on the podcast to talk about her experience on the other side of his heart transplant. And I have one or two other things that I'm cooking up. But in the meantime, I hope you enjoyed this conversation and I hope you'll come back for the rest of the Facing Your Health Fears podcast series. Thanks for listening, everyone. I'll talk to you soon. This is not um, gotcha journalism here. <laughs> not gotcha journalism? Boy, that is not, a good thing. I am, isn't it? I'm, I'm relieved. Good. I thought you were. I thought you were out to get me, Liz Norell. Well, not this time. <laughs> <laughs> Boy, that is a that that laugh is kind of mean. I, I I'm gonna have to. I'm gonna have to watch you. <laughs>